Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 23rd, 2022, 8 a.m. on the west coast of the United States. The numbers shouldn't lie. They don't lie. But of course, they do lie. Numbers are always more complicated than they appear. Numbers are much more subtle, more malleable than scientists would like us to think. Although we've had a number of scientists on the show who have reminded us that science and math and statistics are uh, not quite as exact as we'd like to think of them. Michael Brooks, a mathematician, was on the show telling us how Math shapes our world, not just scientifically, but intellectually. He has an interesting book, The Art of More, How Math Created Civilization, if we do indeed have civilization these days. Uh, James Zing, Zimring, another mathematician, was on, on the show also last year talking about how math distorts our thinking, what science is and how it really works is the subject of Zimring's book. Um, we assume that if we can get beyond the ideology, the thought, we can get to the facts, we can get beyond bias. But as a guest uh, last week reminded us, Jessica Nordell, if we're going to get to the end of bias, she has a book, uh, The End of Bias, A Beginning, uh, we need to also overcome our unconscious bias, which often manifests itself in the numbers itself. You'd think that one kind of numerical phenomenon, the U.S. Census Bureau, would be the fount of objectivity, the fount of an unbiased foundation of making sense of America. Uh, U.S. Census Bureau, even these days, have a, a Twitter account. They have uh, almost 125,000 followers, uh, not 125,000, uh, 125,000 followers, which tells us something about them. So the numbers are more than just the numbers, as indeed my guest will today tell us. Dan, Dan Book is the author of Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them, a book about reading between the lines, between the numbers on the U.S. Census. And Dan is joining us. Dan, where are you talking to us from? I'm joining you from Colgate University, which is just about to begin classes here in upstate New York. Lovely. Well, the numbers lie, do they, Dan, or they don't when it comes to the census? Should we trust our census? I think that you should trust the U.S. Census and its numbers more, at least as much as you trust any other numbers that you're going to run into. The one That's I'm not saying do, much, is it? Though? Most of us don't trust anything these days. But we got to get by on something, right? And if you're going to use something as a as a basis, as a source from which to try to make agreements, make arguments, work with one another, the census is a great place to start. Uh, what I'm interested in in this book and trying to do with this book is not so much undermine people's faith in the census, but get them to understand how much else it can tell us, how a data set can tell us a lot about the society that produced it its values, its ideas, as much as anything else. But also, to the point of what you're talking about from some of your earlier uh, guests, I guess I'm not, 
I'm not, I have not much faith that we will ever get beyond bias. Indeed, bias is one of the things, in a sense, the the way in which we all see the world, our own biased perspectives, is one of the things that make the world so beautiful and brilliant in the first place. Uh, but yeah, um, well, you'll have to um, you you should have a look at uh, Jessica Nordell's book, The End of Bias. I was expecting something slightly more intolerant, but actually, she was quite open and, and quite humorous about the idea of the end of bias. I tend to agree with you that as humans, we are by definition bias. If you take out our bias, then we're not very interesting. I mean, much of the, I think the reason we end up talking about removing bias is because we've built systems in which we assume that decisions can be made by purely objective data or that decisions can be made purely objectively. Uh, in most cases that can't happen. Um, but at the same time, that's not to, to get rid of the ideal of objectivity or the idea that we can remove um, some kinds, some amounts of personal judgment or certainly um, certain kinds of uh, judgments or prejudices that we don't, we as a society think aren't, don't belong. That, uh, Dan, is that the foundations of the US census? Uh, your, your book focuses in particular on the 1940 census, but What's the history of the census? When was it actually founded? When was the first U.S. census? Yeah, I mean, I'll say the reason it starts in 1940 is because that's the that was the time I was writing this book. The most recent data set for which we had not just the numbers afterwards, but also all of the the kind of material that went into making those numbers. So it allowed us to kind of see un look under the hood and see how the census was made. But the census uh, is called for in the U.S. Constitution. It is part of an enlightenment project, this idea that democracy requires that people be represented according to their numbers. And so the census was instituted so that every 10 years, each state would have its population accounted for. And then the number of representatives in the US House of Representatives and the number of votes in the electoral college could be made proportional to the number of people in each of those states. Oh, so um, the census was originally uh, constructed to determine um, electoral, not college uh, votes, but um, numbers of representatives that each state got in, in, in Congress. So in, a, in an odd way, it's in, in states' interest to inflate their numbers, isn't it? Because then they'd get more seats. Yeah. When it was instituted, there was a theoretical balance uh, in the sense that it was also supposed to be tied to direct taxation, but in practice there was very little direct taxation um, directed. What at year? In what year was the census introduced then? So the very first census took place in 1790, right after the Constitution had been ratified, and then it since has been happening every 10 years. Many other Census Bureau surveys also happen in the intermediary years, and then there are census estimates that take place and an ongoing every year American community survey that asks a small sample of people about questions. But every 10 years, now every, on every uh, year ending in zero, there is a U.S. census. And I assume that the history of the census is bound up in the history of not just U.S. states, but the U.S. state itself, its objectivity uh, and its power. I mean, there are power in numbers and those numbers are manifested in uh, the ability of the state to, to collate all this information. I mean, one of the things that comes through very clearly when you look at past censuses, when you even just examine the sheets to think about like, what were people asked? What questions did the state care about? What, how did it 
want to understand and know its citizens, it tells you a lot about the values of the state at that given moment, um, about its values and also the, the questions that were most on its mind. So very early on, the first censuses were censuses, they, they are all now censuses of households, but to begin with only male head of households were counted or the heads of households were counted, which usually were considered uh, to be men. Uh, only um, so the, how people were counted changed. So for the, up until uh, the end of the Civil War and the, pass, the passing of the Reconstruction Amendments, all enslaved people were counted, but then only counted as three fifths of an individual for the purpose of representation. And so this was that, that's rather the... chilling, isn't it? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the census, I, I often say I, I believe in the census. I think it's a it is at its kind of fundamental level holds some of the greatest ideals of democratic governance. But it's it's a, a set of ideals that over. So, so Dan, to what extent to. is the census just a mirror? You had an interesting piece in Wired about how queerness fits into the U.S. census. I'm guessing that uh, the U.S. Census Bureau wasn't particularly interested in sexual orientation up until maybe five or 10 years ago, and now they're probably more concerned. You also had a piece in Lit Hub about race and the census. It goes without saying, as you just suggested, that uh, the census was a mirror on a, a deeply racist society. Um, are there times in its history where the census has, has lagged or... Uh, been a step ahead or, 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 or been um, not a mirror, something quite different in terms of reflecting uh, a different set of assumptions or power relations than traditional society? Well, that's interesting. To I would almost challenge the idea that it's ever a mirror. It is, in fact, quite frequently the place in which these fights about policy are taking place. Mm. If you were to look at the census from like the 1880s through the 1910s, 1920s, you'd find that a lot of the, the real estate on that census form was covered with questions asking about people's uh, country of origin, where their parents were born, the languages that their parents spoke. And the reason for that was because in Congress, in larger society, there was a lot of debate about immigration in the United States. And it was a debate that that had many sides. Uh, it was by no means in inevitable that there would be what ended up being a rather strict immigration restriction passed between 1870 and the end of the 1920s. But the census, the, one of the reasons it's asking all those questions is precisely because Congress and other folks want to know how many people are there, where are they coming from, how do we understand this population? And so they, they pushed to have the Census Bureau ask these questions. Um, not because the census is mirroring that society, but because the census is one of the tools that society uses to engage in politics. Uh, in your book, you have one troubling case of how the census was used after Pearl Harbor to um, to snoop on the numbers of, of Japanese people. To what extent was the racial makeup of the Census Bureau, I assume, it was very white male focused and, and probably... It was tough for um, kids of, uh, I don't know, Irish, uh, Italian, Jewish origins, even and white white men to get into the Census Bureau. So what the Census Bureau is, especially during a census, is a little bit 
uh, it would be very careful how we define this. If you think about the Census Bureau at the moment of a census taking place, say in 1940, say in 2020, well then the vast majority of the people who are the census are census enumerators, census takers. Hmm. Uh, in 1940, that was 125,000 people. So they're the foot soldiers, but someone they've they got to take orders from someone. Yeah, they're the foot soldiers. But but just to answer your question about like who these folks are, in 1940, about half of them, a little over half of them are men, but a little over half of them are women. Uh, from different states, you can see different... Um, uh, How can they be little over half be both men and women? Oh, I, I, must have mis I must have misspoken. A little half are, are men and a little under a half are women. Okay. Excuse me. Good. Um, in, in, a, in, in the Jim Crow South, uh, you would find pretty much no, there are just a, a handful of black enumerators, but say in New York in 1940, in predominantly black neighborhoods, you have in Harlem, for instance, you have tons of black enumerators who are um, wandering around. And was doing this that well campaign. paid? Was this the kind of job that perhaps, and I excuse this term, a housewife or a student might take up? I mean, a housewife was was often it was a category that they were used in the 1940 census, and it was indeed a a group of people who were particularly well suited. Teachers who were also um, very much sought after by the Census Bureau as folks who would be kind of able to follow instructions and be trusted in the community the it was a sought after job it was sought after in part because you have to, in 1940 you have to remember the great depression was not over and so any job was quite useful and these jobs were also to a degree patronage positions so the ruling party in this case the democrats had control over who were assigned to then hand out these jobs in their community now and as you said they were that was tempered they wanted to find people who were both on their political side and also who could count well because if they didn't count well then they might lose power in government or might lose funding or might. and lose when you say their... count well you you mean that euphemistically i assume no, no I, I actually mean they they, they so wanted they didn't to cheat i mean you you focus on the nine on the 1940 uh, census in your book, you said that it's the last really great census. Obviously, uh, a, a, U, a U.S. of FDR, of, uh, the New Deal. Um, what does your very in-depth reading of the 1940 census tell us about the America of 1940 that most of our viewers and listeners might be surprised with? Hmm. I mean, to take one of these questions about how how people think about government. When in 1940, as the New Deal was rolling out, one of the things we, when we talk about the New Deal, what that really means is it's the idea that government should be involved in protecting and taking care of the economic lives of its people, of its citizens, of its residents. And as part of that, then, for the first time, the Census Bureau asked questions about individual income. Most people did not have their income. Uh, we're not paying income taxes by that point. So this was a one of the first times that the federal government was asking them this kind of question. And in part because of um, very well orchestrated political attacks on that income question, but also I think because people were legitimately concerned about revealing their information, they pushed back against this income question. But, and this is I think the part that might be a little surprising, it's not so much that they were concerned about the central government, but the federal government knowing about their income. Indeed, people who were com complaining about this would write to their senators and say, I make so-and-so amount, amount of money, but I don't wanna tell this to my local enumerator. 
it was mistrust within their communities, mistrust of someone of the person that they lived with, they lived near that that person by telling them their income, it was going to come back to bite them sometime later on in their that reflects rather life. poorly uh, on the America of the 1940s. I mean, um, you know, it was always understood that Americans didn't bowl alone in the 1940s. Maybe they did. Um, countries, of course, vary on the census. I know that the Swedish census, I don't know about its history. I, I assume, Dan, you've looked at this. Swedish census, for example, is much more revealing. I think on the Swedish census, you have to tell them how much you earn. And that may be one reason why Sweden is a more egalitarian society than the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. Also, a lot of um, Northern European countries, I mean, many countries around the world, uh, use a, a, a census count, but then also rely a lot on registration data, on data about where people are born, about their deaths, but also about from people as they move from city to city, you register in your cities or in your localities. And so they can keep rather accurate uh, information about individuals through those registration processes. And of course, Americans are registered in all kinds of ways. We get driver's license, we register to vote, uh, but centralized, in terms of centralized orchestrated registration systems, the United States tends to have a, a weaker net in, in constructing those kinds of statistics. I will, I will I'll throw out a different census that I think is um, inspirational. The Irish census, census that was conducted last year, asked ordinary statistical questions and then had a, a basically a free form section. I, I think they called it a time capsule, but I might be uh, making that part up in which people could explain themselves however they wanted to explain themselves to the future. One of the things that attracted me to this book and one of the reason I look at 1940 is all of the census records are available. And so now we today can look back and find out not just about the entire nation, but we find out a lot of intimate stories, mm. a lot of stories about how people understood themselves within communities. I mean, I think that's the other really important thing to understand and, and the reason that that, that Lidhub piece is uh, interesting about Langston Hughes. Every time we look at one of these census records and millions of people look at these census records to construct their genealogies, we're not seeing, again, a, a simple truth about these individuals. We're seeing the outcome of a negotiation of some kind of an interaction between an enumerator and a person being enumerated and this form, which has kind of strict rules about what can and cannot be written down. And these folks are working together trying to figure out how can I take myself, which is kind of complicated and I see myself in, in ways that maybe other people don't see me, but how can I fit that complex person into these prescribed cells on a sheet? Let's fast forward, Dan, to today. I've been doing a little bit of research online on current state of the U.S. census. A lot of concern on the right amongst conservatives that the Census Bureau is overcounting blue states, undercounting red states, distorting election, presumably pro-liberal bias. To what extent do you think the current crisis of the credibility of the state particularly amongst conservatives, might actually undermine the census. And it will become, I mean, as you've suggested, it's always been implicitly or otherwise a bit of a, a political football, but it will become even more of one today where everything is argued about, particularly from the right. I mean, that is frankly concerning. Uh, I suppose one way that I look at it is that we can, one, one, 
if we know how a census works, and indeed how a census has always worked, if we think about how messy all census counts are, then maybe we can uh, avoid the what I think is a trap in which we imagine the numbers that we rely on are produced out of pure, simple mechanical objectivity. Because if you think that the numbers you look at are produced in a in a pure fashion, then any anyone coming out and saying, oh, look, there's a little error here. Or, this is a funny way in which this number came about. Then suddenly you lose all Everyone's faith. so paranoid about either liberal or conservative conspiracies of one kind or another. No, indeed. But so, so part of what I want to do with this book is get people to understand that data sets are always built from, well, they're built from messy reality. And because they're built from messy reality, it means it's going to be, people often talk about the census as a kind of sausage making operation. And you, you really don't want to see how the, how the sausage is made, but you kind of have to, or else when somebody tells you what's in that sausage, you're going to be refused to eat. Uh, and we need people to keep relying on these numbers. I'm not going to torture the metaphor. We need people to keep using the census records. I do think that there are some other alternatives. So as conservatives worry about um, the undercounts helping some states and harming others, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. So the United States, since 1920, has essentially operated with only 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. But that wasn't the way it used to be. It used to be that every 10 years, the House of Representatives would often increase as the population increased. And as a result, it meant that uh, the Congress and the people who were doing this uh, apportionment could partly accommodate the fact that they knew these numbers were not always perfect. But it also meant that the, no state would be punished, or very often states were not punished by losing a seat in the House. Rather, other states were rewarded by having more and more representatives added. But those, the people who have seniority, people who are in their state who've been in Congress and have some experience, the state doesn't lose those representatives as a result of these of the census numbers. I think that would that would be good. Yeah, you you of... you, uh, you outline this in a piece um, you wrote for Wired that democracy is asking too much of its data. Uh, the latest U.S. census used to decide representation in Congress is flawed. One surprising solution: enlarge the House of Representatives. How would that work, Dan? Right, I mean, and some folks are going to say, "What more Congress people, Dan? That's crazy." Uh, the thing is. The population of the United States has tripled since 1920, and the size of the House has stayed the same. Now, there's a number of ways you could do this. Some folks, um, the Our Common Purpose uh, report uh, proposes adding about 150 seats to start. My my uh, solution, the, the way I'd like to do it, is simply remove the automated system that now exists. So now the census numbers are produced, and then they are automatically run through an algorithm that decides how many seats go to which state. And that essentially then, this usually goes to the Supreme Court or the courts as one or two states that are on the edge fight with one another. But I'd like to, again, this might sound crazy, but I want to put it back in Congress's hands and, and make Congress every 10 years read the census and come up with a way of apportioning itself. In part because what history suggests is that the way that they'll compromise is by expanding the size of the House until no state loses any seats. Because... That way you get everyone, folks in the Senate are much more likely to vote for a bill if their state doesn't lose a seat than they are to vote for one in which they do lose a seat. Dan, what about the competition from the private sector when it comes to data? Um, 
to do a little bit of research uh, for this interview. I looked you up on Google, lots of information. I could go to the Census Bureau to know about Dan uh, Bauk. Um, Google, of course, the, the, the search engine was a misspelling when the, the boys founded, uh, when Sergey and Larry founded Google back in the late 90s. Uh, they were thinking of naming after Google a large number, which was a mathematical um, number, an unimaginably large number. At the moment, Google probably knows, certainly knows more about us as individuals than because um, we all use Google and we all use the Internet than any Census Bureau. Do we really even need the Census Bureau, particularly in an age where everything seems to be being outsourced to multi-trillion dollar tech companies like Google and Amazon and Apple? So I'd say there's a couple of different ways to answer that. One is to note that even those, even when we're, we're supposedly outsourcing big data operations to private companies like Amazon or Google, they then themselves rely on government data and government infrastructure in order to make their work possible. So for instance, anytime you read about somebody who's doing polling or making a survey, and when you look at Google Maps, the underlying foundation for those data structures are often census produced information in the first place. You can't do any kind of a sample survey unless you first have a, what you believe to be a rather robust picture of the entire population, right? So a sample we think of as you pull balls out of an urn and then if, as long as you kind of know in general what the population of that urn is in the future, or that urn is, then you can, you can make some, some good claims about the probability of things, other things happening about the other characteristics of that urn. But you have to know how many balls are in there uh, and you have to know some, some basic uh, ideas. And also the other thing is to, to get a good balance structure to know that the people you're asking are representative of the population. You need to know what the population looks like. So the Census Bureau's offers a kind of knowledge that really no one else, no public entity replicates. And it has come up in, in years over the past 50 or 60 years. People have asked, well, should, shouldn't we just let private companies do this? But, but usually even many of those private companies say, well, actually, we really need the census data in the first place. So then we can do these other things you want us to do. And this, the second thing I would just say is that uh, a reason to be concerned about relying entirely on private data is not just that we don't have democratic control over it. We have very little, very few levers for which to decide what happens to it, but also it's going to be incredibly ephemeral. Uh, we, we can't see under the hood right now, and there's no reason to believe that we'll be able to see under the hood in 70 years. Well, looking no under the hood, we'll I mean, that's, and that's your point is that you look under the hood and actually it's even more complicated than before you've raised the hood. You, you, you brought up you use the word replicate. I just saw uh, or watched uh, Blade Runner again, a great 1980s movie featuring replicators, uh, men, uh, men whose job it was to distinguish between machines and humans. Could we imagine a future, Dan, where the Census Bureau was also reporting on smart machines as well as humans? Now, that's, that's interesting. Um, I suppose... Probably if we looked, we'd find that the Census Bureau's economic divisions in one way or another is already thinking about that. So the, the economic division of the census, which is actually very large and constantly in operation, is responsible for understanding how American business and manufacturing is changing at any given time. So there's, there's some extent to which that is happening there. 
Now, the, the larger question you're asking would be a political question, which would be about, does a smart machine count as a person as is required to be counted by the by the constitution mm, it'll no. be an interesting dilemma for and and maybe we can go the other way as a i found something about census about how the census bureau is looking for a human face they have a picture of their new director uh robert santos supposedly with a human face presumably the census bureau of the future in our high-tech ia ai world could be a machine too so it goes both ways finally um Dan, talking about a more human face of the census, if there are for the Bureau, you've done a lot of thinking, digging, research. Um, what one thing would you like to see the Census Bureau do to, to, to maintain its relevance, to make it more relevant and useful in the America of the 2020s and beyond? So I'll say one thing that the, this is not something the Census Bureau can do, but there's something Congress can do, is it can uh, give... Census Bureau greater independence from the executive branch, uh, which would not be independence from democracy or from democratic oversight. But right now, as part of the executive branch, it is susceptible to certain kinds of political influence that otherwise it might not be. Uh, I want to make that distinction because something that not just the Census Bureau can do, but again, that we as individuals can do is we can and should be asserting our sense of what the next census should look like. So as of right now, as of maybe just a few days ago, the Census Bureau put out its call for public comment on the 2030 census. And so this is a moment in which people can uh, have their voices heard, can get in there and start saying, this is what we think the 2030 census should do, what it should ask. Um, my One of my uh, political personal hobby horses is that the sex binary question, male, female, needs to be expanded to include other options so they can better uh, recognize uh, queer individuals. But then the other thing, and this is my the final thing I'll say, again, it's not something the Census Bureau can do, uh, but we, Congress, everyone should be pushing to make the census both very important, but also make, make its decisions count less you know, or be less automatic. And so that's why I'm saying, I think that we should need to push for things that will allow democracy back in, like expanding the house. Good stuff. If uh, if the new Census Bureau director, Robert Santos, is watching, uh, Dan has some excellent advice. And his new book, uh, Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census of How to Re and How to Read Them, is a really interesting take. Um, you say in your bio, Dan, that uh, you, you research the history of bureaucracies, quantification, and other modern things shrouded in cloaks of boringness, but you're not boring. So congratulations on that. What else, um, in addition uh, to democracy's data, which sounds boring, but isn't um, an interesting new book, what else are you reading that isn't boring, Dan? Uh, well, I've got some other things that might, I don't know if they sound boring or not, uh, but I, I grabbed a couple of books here to show folks. Uh, so this is, I think, maybe one of the most important books that I've read this year. This is by uh, Elizabeth Pop Berman, Thinking like an yeah, economist. She's been on the show. She's excellent. All right. I should have yeah. actually added her at first because she's very much in the the sort of the, the skeptic of the end of bias camp. Yeah, yeah it's a I mean, very good book, that. Very no, good. And, a, she, and she was a good interview. You should watch the interview. Yeah, I will definitely do that. Um, this book, if growing, I grew up exactly in this moment or like exactly in the moment after that, which Berman's talking about in which. Yeah, the sort of neoliberal turn, if you like. 
yeah and i was taught that efficiency was the key value and it's really um revealing to see in this book how and why that came to be the way that it is the other book you I'll say seem is, pretty efficient dan i'm very inefficient i have to admit well being efficient is different than believing that efficiency is the prime value we should use for making yeah, policy right i'd uh, love an book. inefficient census bureau i think that if they got it all wrong i think their findings would be more interesting <laughs> Well, that's a, that's another book. I don't have it with me, but there's a book. Maybe that's uh, for fiction. Maybe that's for our next fiction writer. There's a great novel by Jesse Ball called Census in which he imagines exactly that, a census that is entirely inefficient, that goes and allows oh, people to make up that. their own questions and tell their stories. Uh, other book I'll say is by um, Catherine Oliverius, uh, Necropolis, Ooh. which is uh, a story, unfortunately, right for our times in which she asks why it was that New Orleans in Antebellum, New Orleans, the center of American commerce, center of American capitalism, you could say, and the, the movement of cotton and other goods out to the rest of the world, why the city allowed itself to continue to be um, constantly plagued by yellow fever, even as other places in the United States were fighting against yellow fever and finding ways to get out of it. And her answer is chilling, deeply chilling. It's the folks who had survived yellow fever, who had been seasoned and who had become the elites in that city had very little incentive to pay the extra taxes, put the extra money into building infrastructure to destroy yellow fever, which might also actually create the new competitors for themselves in controlling this important entrepot. So it's a great and really, really important book.